Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I've been informed that we have a full house, so we could as well start the, start the proceedings. My name is Arne Westad. I'm the director of LSE Ideas, which is the LSE's Center for International Affairs, Diplomacy and Strategy. And I am very pleased to have a wonderful panel here tonight to discuss the question of whether China will dominate the 21st century. And for any of you who want to tweet about this occasion, I'm informed from good sources that it's hashtag LSE Asia Rising, which is the denominator uh, for what goes on here today. So, so tweet away um, whatever you agree or disagree with or anything that comes from the panel. I can promise you, by the way, that there will be plenty of time to discuss this both in the panel and with the audience after we finish the uh, presentations. Just a couple of things before we get going, because if not, I will forget. Uh, Ideas is doing a survey tonight, so if you could possibly fill in this little survey sheet here before you leave, that would be much appreciated. I also promised to plug the LSE... Peking University Summer School on the 11th to 22nd of August this year in Beijing, which is one of the LSE's flagship operations outside of London, and I believe there are several courses that still may have places left for that if you are, if you are interested. So that's the 11th LSE PKU Summer School. There are courses on everything from administration and finance to, to international affairs. And then finally, um, let me also mention that tomorrow um, we will be running a seminar on the EU and China with our two visiting fellows from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, from the Weijiao Bu, uh, Feng Yin and uh, Shen Jianping, who will be talking about China's relations to the EU from a Chinese perspective. And that's at 630 over in our new building on um, Lincoln's Inn Fields, uh, the former land registry, B13. So I would, I would recommend that very strongly. Now tonight we have a really stellar cast in terms of discussing the issue of China's position in the 21st century. Jonathan Fenby, who has just published a book, and let me plug the book since... I'm sure you will do it later on, Jonathan, if I don't, but even so. Jonathan's new book, Will my, China my Dominate the 21st Century, which is given the title, of course, for this August, August occasion, but it could as well be called All You Need to Know About China in the 21st Century. So I would, it's my little red book. I would recommend it very strongly. Now, Jonathan is the China Director at the Research Service Trusted Sources, um, he is the former editor of the South China Morning Post and the Observer, among other newspapers, and he has written several very influential book, uh, books on China's history and Chinese current affairs. So Jonathan will present first. And then to comment, we have uh, two excellent, really first-rate commentators today, Isabel Hilton, um, who is a Scottish journalist and broadcaster who is based here in London, who knows more about China. Um, than most people who I have ever come across in China and, and elsewhere. She's now the editor of uh, the um, website China Dialogue, um, and she has earlier on worked, among other institutions, for the BBC and the Sunday Times. 
Now, it's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Ambassador Wu Jianmin um, to the panel. Ambassador Wu is one of the leading voices on foreign and international affairs uh, in China. He is currently the vice chairman of the China Institute for Innovation and Development Strategy, but crucially, he's also a member of the Foreign Policy Advisory Committee of the Chinese Foreign Ministry, and he has a number of other distinguished posts. Um, he served, among other positions in Chinese diplomacy, one of them being a, a key advisor to the Chinese foreign minister, uh, as ambassador to France from 2003 to 2007. So we really have a very good group of people to discuss the topic, will China dominate the 21st century? And the only thing that I will ask for is that we have, by the end of the evening, a pretty clear answer to that question. If we can't get it, if we can't get it from the panel, uh, I hope we can get it from the audience. So, Jonathan, it's a great pleasure to have you back at LSE, and we're looking forward to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you very much, Arnie. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I can come up with uh, an immediate answer to your question, so we can all probably go off and have a drink, uh, which is that when the publisher uh, called me and said uh, Polity that they were doing a series on great questions for our time, will capitalism collapse? Will there be war in the Middle East? Will global warming kill us all? Will China dominate the 21st century? And they wanted a 25,000-word essay on this. I answered, well, I can give you the answer to that in two consecutive letters of the alphabet to be found just after the middle, N and O. <laughs> but I can write another 24,000 words to explain why, which is what uh, this book is about. Uh, I don't think China particularly wants to dominate the 21st century. There has been a school, uh, obviously, with Martin Jakes of the LSE, uh, when China rules the world, uh, and other uh, commentators saying the 21st century belongs to China. A uh, wide range of people, George Soros, Tom Friedman, uh, Francis Fukuyama and others, saying uh, that China is bound to forge ahead because its system is better than that of the collapsing, dysfunctional West, this kind of China, admiration of China, which uh, took off, I suppose, about three or four years ago. Uh, on the other hand, and I, I don't uh, go along with that for reasons that I'll explain uh, in, in a moment. On the other hand, we've had, if you might call it, the collapsist school, uh, which has been around for 10, 12 years, which is that China is bound to implode. It's, it's internal contradictions and, above all, uh, problems in the banking sector and other areas of its uh, economy are bound to bring it down. I don't go along with that either. Um, if you like, I adopt an extreme centrist position, as we used to say when I worked at The Economist, uh, towards this, that it is neither dominance or supremacy nor uh, collapse that one expects from China. Obviously, the sheer speed and scale uh, of the development of the People's Republic over the last 35 years um, has taken a lot of people's breath away. Uh, I would say myself, if I had to uh, be put to it, and it's an easy thing to say from outside, uh, that actually <coughs> the speed has been too much and the scale has been too wide. Uh, and we are now with China at a position where the old equation uh, forged under Deng Xiaoping for the economy of uh, cheap wages, abundant cheap labor, cheap capital, and welcoming export markets no longer works. 
labour has become more expensive steadily. Credit is much more expensive, particularly uh, if you go outside the state banking uh, sector into the shadow banking sector. And obviously export markets ain't what they used to be uh, around the world. And there is increased competition uh, at the bottom end uh, of exports from even cheaper producing nations. Uh, and there is an awareness, I think, in Beijing of the need uh, for change, the need for a new model, the need for rebalancing, whatever phrase uh, you use. And this uh, was very much evident uh, last November at the third plenum of the Communist Party, uh, which set out, as I'm sure some of you are familiar with, a 60-point program for reform stretching to 2020. It, it, it's not precise, the, the, the program. These are ambitions rather than uh, a detailed roadmap there. But uh, the recognition of the need for change uh, is certainly there. And most interestingly, from, if you like, a power position point of view, uh, that uh, recipe, that uh, agenda for reform was drawn up by the Central Committee of the Communist Party. In the past, uh, reform initiatives had very largely come from the government, which of course in the Leninist system is subservient to the Communist Party. What has now happened is that the reform agenda has been moved from the government which was, for instance, put forward ideas under Wen Jiabao in 2010, which were squashed and got nowhere. It's been moved from the government into the uh, center of the Communist Party. And that is a very important, I think, uh, development there, with Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, uh, being the first signatory uh, on that reform document, and the name of the Prime Minister Li Keqiang not appearing anywhere, which was rather strange, although he is number two in the Politburo. We then had the formation of a reform commission again, rooted in the Communist Party, with Xi as its chairman. So uh, Xi, who is uh, the most powerful Chinese leader we've seen since Deng Xiaoping, and in some ways most powerful since Mao, given the array of titles uh, that he's got. He's now accumulated, by my account, eight different uh, senior positions. You wonder how he can do them all and how he's going to spend his days. Um, but uh, among them is this... Uh, control of the economy and he said interestingly at the first meeting of the reform commission which he chairs that uh, in effect what he said was that the weight of the Politburo was needed in order to produce reform given the vested interests which were uh, involved there. But this reform program as I say it, it's, it lasts till 2020 it's an enormous program and it uh, both in itself it is enormous, but also it uh, would entail, if carried out, and of course we have a big always if about implementation, uh, some major recalculations, rebalancing in the power structure uh, in China because uh, you would be affecting some of those vested interests which are very strong in the party state system uh, that uh, rules the country. So I think this is going to be a long, delicate, very sensitive process. You can see that at the meeting of the National People's Congress. Uh, I was in Beijing uh, for that uh, last week. And Prime Minister Li Keqiang's uh, final press conference where, if, where he was unusually kind of hesitant about, yes, 
we hope for 7.5% growth, but it doesn't matter if we don't quite hit that. Last year was a difficult year. We dealt with the challenges, but we've got even more challenges this year. The short-term problems, I think, facing uh, China on the economic front at the moment are such that that is going to absorb the energies and interests of the leadership uh, for certainly uh, the next six, seven years, probably right through until Xi Jinping steps down in 2022. And that's my first reason why I don't think China is going to go out and dominate the world. I don't think it wants to. What it wants to do is to get its domestic house in order. And that is a heck of a challenge. Uh, which is going to take up uh, the, 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 the energies uh, of the leadership. That's on the economy. Then you have the whole social evolution of China. Uh, the society has moved very, very fast in China. It's still moving very fast. And what one would call the quality of life issues, uh, going from air pollution through dirty water, through food safety, etc., etc., and down to the lack of accountability and the rule of law, not the rule by law, are all issues which are becoming more and more important, uh, particularly for the second generation of the urban middle class, who, like anybody else, want to be better off, of course, but they've reached that stage where they've probably got enough money to stop uh, having to think all the time about earning a bit more, and they're concerned now about what one calls the why questions. Why do I have to wear a face mask, and why do I have to buy a a bigger and bigger face mask um, because of air pollution. A uh, Chinese friend who I visited in Beijing, he had a, a, a new, uh, actually Japanese made, strange enough, uh, uh, face mask which made him look like Hannibal Lecter, I must say. It was quite a, he's, he, when I said that, he said that, everybody says that, but it works. Um, why you know, do you have to boil all the water in China? Why can't you feed your baby Chinese baby formula without being afraid that it's got melamine in it, uh, which would uh, act as a poisoning agent? And so on and so on. You get these, these why issues, which was why um, uh, Wang Kishan at the time of the last party congress uh, was reported to have circulated to the leadership a reading list, top of which was Alexis de Tocqueville on why the Bourbon monarchy fell, which was partly because they mishandled reform but also there's a phrase, I paraphrase it in de Tocqueville, that the most dangerous moment for an autocracy is when the middle class has enough money to have time to think and that's where we are in China. So there's this other big set of social uh, issues to deal with uh, in China, which again I think are going to become uh, more and more important, which will be amplified by social media, by the fact that even if most uh, social media traffic is chit-chat, I had a nice breakfast today, I saw your boyfriend out with another girl last night, etc., etc., the mere fact that people are able to communicate uh, directly with each other, I think, is, is quite a, a game-changer in China. So there are these domestic issues. There's then Tibet and Xinjiang, which obviously uh, are going to continue to be major preoccupations uh, for Beijing, uh, highlighted by the self-immolation of more than 100 Buddhist nuns and monks uh, in the greater Tibetan area, uh, and by, obviously, the Kunming uh, station attack on March the 1st, uh, and the continuing violence uh, in Xinjiang. So we've got all these areas. We've then got other 
things like the demographics, which are going all wrong in China, um, the, the question of trust, what I call the trust deficit. Uh, do you trust the authorities? Do you? This is partly linked, obviously, with the legal system. All this adds up to a tremendous domestic uh, agenda. I don't think, as I say, that China is going to collapse, that this is going to bring the PRC down. Apart from anything else, there is no alternative to rule by the Communist Party. Um, but that is where the focus will be. And if we look briefly at uh, foreign relations, I don't expect Ambassador Wu uh, to agree with me, but I think China has what David Chambao has called a partial foreign policy. It is there. It is a major player in the world. There's no doubt the emergence of China has been the most important uh, international event since the end of the Cold War. But China operates largely through bilateral relationships um, without necessarily playing the commensurate role, the responsible global stakeholder role, as Bob Zelik had it, uh, in international affairs. It is, it's resource dependent, and that is going to go on. 21% uh, of the world's population, but a shortage of all kinds of raw materials, of, even of water now, uh, in northern China. Um, and there seems to me an uncertainty uh, in uh, the, the leadership as to how to conduct foreign relations beyond the core uh, interests of uh, protecting national sovereignty, non-interference in Chinese domestic affairs, uh, assured supplies of the raw materials needed to keep uh, the economy going. But they haven't, China, for instance, is, one understands, uh, complains that it is bound in, glo in its global dealings by rules drawn up by other powers before it came onto the world scene. Perfectly true. But there is a lack of suggestions, recommendations uh, from China as to how this uh, might be put right. There is the equally the obvious frustration for China of uh, the island chain from Okinawa through Taiwan down to the Philippines and the presence of the very strong US military uh, presence uh, there based in Okinawa and just 100 miles or so off China's coast. Obviously, this is a form of containment, you can see, in a fairly old-fashioned way. Um, but though Xi Jinping told uh, President Obama that the Pacific is big for both of us, big enough for both of us, the trouble is that is true, but the Americans aren't going to go back to Guam uh, and the second island chain, or not if Japan has anything to do with it. Uh, so China is constrained there, but because of the military balance, finds it very difficult, I think, and it's going to find it very difficult to do the kind of power projections which obviously are built in to the military modernization uh, and particularly uh, the naval development which we are seeing uh, at the moment. So we have all these constraints on China which um, I don't think uh, are, are really going to be materially changed in the years ahead despite the formation of a National Security Council uh, headed again inevitably by Xi Jinping um, which may produce more coordinated foreign policy but a, a coherent global policy uh, I think uh, is still missing. So those are some of the reasons why I don't think China uh, is going to dominate this century. I don't think Chinese soft power, despite the amount spent on it and despite obviously a greater awareness of Chinese culture, Chinese civilization in the rest of the world, that really Chinese soft power 
um, is, uh, rivals that uh, of uh, the United States and the West at the moment, and I'm not sure really that we're going to see that. All the predictions that uh, our children and grandchildren would have to learn Mandarin, well, perhaps, but more people are learning English in China than are learning Mandarin in the rest of the world uh, at the moment. Uh, so there are all these reasons. I'm not taking a negative view here of China's future. As I say, I don't think China is going to collapse, but I don't think that it is, has either the will or, at the moment, the readiness uh, to move out and become the dominant power in the world. I'm not sure, I must say, that uh, any power really was dominant of the whole world. I mean, even when at the height of the U.S., uh, power, still the Soviet Union and indeed China were beyond uh, America's remit. Uh, but my bottom line, the reason why I say, uh, give a negative answer, is first of all that I don't think China wants to dominate the world. Secondly, I don't think any power can dominate the world. And thirdly, that I think as it moves into the second generation of economic growth and seeks the new growth model there, China is going to be looking inward for perfectly sensible reasons rather than coming out and uh, ruling uh, the decades to come. I'm not sure that one could look ahead to the end of the 21st century. Anything could have happened by then. But at any rate, in my lifetime, I don't expect the answer to my question to be positive. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. A very clear answer. If I could just add sorry, one thing I meant to say, I wondered what the reaction to this book in China itself would be. And I was somewhat surprised that, first of all, China Daily did a 12-page special based on an interview, starting with an interview with me, which was largely people agreeing with me. But then even more surprisingly, the Communist Party tabloid, Global Times, which is not necessarily known for its reticence, <laughs> um, came out with an op-ed saying I was absolutely right and China shouldn't seek to dominate the world. Of course, the reaction from various people, let us say, on the suspicious right in the United States to this was that I had been adopted as a useful <laughs> idiot and my book was now being used to lull the rest of the world into complacency over China's designs. Now, if it's a conspiracy or not, Jonathan, um, what, what is clear is that you came up with the with a um, very definite answer to the question that we asked. We're very, very grateful for that. We have a chance to discuss it. So, Isabel, will China dominate the 21st century? Um, do I have a light on? I think uh, you do. I think it's all right. Well, I wouldn't expect to disagree with Jonathan very profoundly, and, and indeed I don't. So I, I think that um, it depends what you mean by dominate. I mean, clearly China has a very big position in the world already, uh, there's no reason to suppose it will lose that position, you know, second largest economy, biggest manufacturer, huge trade volumes. But like Jonathan, I think that it, China's domestic concerns are going to keep it pretty occupied for quite some time for a number of, of reasons. I think if you're running China and you wake up in the morning, what do you think about? Well, first of all, you look out of the window to see if you can see anything. Mm. And secondly, you worry about how you uh, manage this very tricky transition and, uh, and hold on to power for the Communist Party. Mm. And I think that the contradictions between that are going to grow 
steadily more acute. Now, clearly every country is different, but if you look at the trajectory of the other much smaller Asian tigers, they all went through this very rapid, Mm. low-added value, cheap manufacturer, highly polluting model. They get to a point where that model is exhausted and they have to make a transition to a higher value, uh, more innovative uh, economy. And that is at the point at which the middle class kick in. And every one of them at that point had a political crisis uh, in which the middle classes essentially challenged the autocracy and won. So Taiwan becomes a democracy, South Korea, uh, even Japan, which was effectively a one-party state till that point. Now, I don't want to get into the kind of democracy in China argument because it tends to lead nowhere. But I do want to point out that there is a a big contradiction between the demands of the kind of economy that China is trying to become um, and the maintenance of uh, exclusive rule for the party. So we are at a transition which I would probably date back to the 12th five-year plan rather than the third plenum, where the 12th five-year plan looks at the costs Mm. Um, and, and, and benefits of the economic model says it's over, we need to make a transition to the uh, higher consumption, less investment-led, you know, less polluting, more sustainable model. And, and the 12th five-year plan is essentially uh, the beginnings of a blueprint for a more sustainable uh, economy. But we're also at a transition in the relationship between the people and the government, and that has many, many factors in. And and I think that we are at the end of that bargain that was struck after 1989, after Tiananmen, in which the government essentially said, if you stay out of politics, we will make you better off. And that worked for quite a long time. But just at the point where the the urban middle classes in particular are beginning to enjoy the fruits of that period, where they've acquired their apartment, they're getting their car, they can travel, they can go to university abroad and so on, Um, they find that they're living in a world that is literally poisoned. So the first time the middle class come out on the streets between after 1989 is in 2007, and it's in Xiamen, a rather pleasant southern town, and it's a massive protest against a proposal to build a chemical factory in an area that shouldn't have been zoned as residential but had been. So all these people had their investment in the the new prosperous, moderately prosperous middle class life and it was threatened uh, by uh, by the proposal to build a PX factory. They won that battle. There was an intervention from Beijing. It's a long and complex story but essentially they won. And and so these protests were then repeated all over the country and still still go on and, and they win Many of them. Um, Last year, they managed to stop a nuclear reprocessing plant in Guangdong, which, uh, much to the annoyance of the central government, there's a a battle over another uh, refinery in Kunming, which is at the end of the pipeline that goes across Burma, so also uh, very important. Um, And these are all um, expressions, if you like, of of the claim of the middle class uh, to have more control uh, over the conditions of their life. Uh, and how is that claim to be uh, enacted, to be expressed in, uh, in the current political system? Well, it's very difficult. Um, if you are unhappy as a citizen in China, 
uh, with the actions of the state or the actions of, of powerful actors backed by the state. You have very few legal and safe ways uh, of protecting your interest. Uh, there's very little uh, opportunity to participate in planning decisions, to make your views known, to defend your interests in, in, in legal and orderly ways. And so it does tend to drive people either into acquiescence or onto the street. Um, so this very system is creating the disorder uh, that the, the state particularly dislikes. And when these uh, discontents reach the, the street, they are then categorized as a stability issue. And since 2008, we have seen stability rise up the, uh, the, the domestic concern uh, until <clears throat> under the last uh, uh, administration. Uh, for several years, domestic uh, stability had more spent on it than external defense. Mm. Um, and that's a worrying sign of where the government sees the enemy, if you like, uh, or the principal enemy, and who, who are, uh, what is instability uh, threatening. Um, so I think, what, I, I think this is really a, a symptom of a malfunctioning polity, and I think that that malfunction is going to make it quite difficult for China to manage the transition uh, that Jonathan uh, was talking about. China has no choice but to do this uh, transition. <clears throat> and just to pick up on some of the points that uh, Jonathan made or the issues that he, that he pointed to, um, China Dialogue, which I, which I run, um, deals with uh, environment and climate. And, and in the six or seven years that we've been doing this, we have seen this go from, a, a, if you like, a marginal, we'll deal with it later issue, uh, develop first, clean up later, which was which was what was said in Beijing when we, when we began, uh, to absolutely center stage political uh, uh, question, um, to the point that Xi Jinping in the last, in the Lianghui, which has just happened, uh, declared war on pollution. Fine. And, you know, there is a great deal of high-level policy. Uh, there are uh, plans for cleaning up air and water. And, and please be in no doubt how serious these crises are. You know, air is, if you like, the least of it, although it is uh, the most sensitive in terms of, of the population. Uh, far more serious is water, where you have a crisis both of supply and of contamination, uh, which, is, which is, get, has quite profound economic effects. Um, and a crisis of soil pollution, uh, which remains a state secret, uh, the extent and the degree of it remains a state secret. And that... Uh, again, affects it makes people extremely anxious because if soil is contaminated, that which is grown in it is also contaminated. Um, and I wonder how long people will accept the fact that the leadership has its own food supply, which is clean, and the rest of the population uh, is denied the information on which to make a sound judgment of what to eat and you know where they might source it. So. You know these these tensions are, are are real and these problems are real and I, I you know they to give credit to the Chinese government they are beavering away on policies um, that uh, will address them but uh, it all looks in terms of law in terms of regulation in terms of action plans it all looks quite convincing until you begin to examine it slightly more closely so again at the Lianghui. Um, you, you have to ask yourself um, whether any of these policy initiatives are having an effect. The difficulty is that if you 
see how other countries, all the countries that have been through an industrial revolution, managed to clean up the toxic effects of that industrial revolution, it wasn't just about government action. It needs a whole gamut of forces to bear. And usually, in, in the past, it has begun with civic action. It has begun with the, the, those who were affected, uh, citizens organised groups, they organised pressure groups, they form NGOs, they recruit the press, the media in their support, they recruit the wider public, and they recruit the law. All of these things were necessary to affect the changes uh, that were required. Now, in China, whilst nominally you have a lot of those things, none of those instruments really work. So civil society, by government design, is weak uh, and, and divided. The law is explicitly under political control. The media, as we know, is, is, is also uh, uh, restricted in what it can report. So you have a government that is trying to maintain a top-down authoritarian system and enact a whole series of policies that need horizontal inputs, be it information or, 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 or simply public support or legal uh, instruments. It's trying to do it without those things. Um, and it, it's not really working. So if you look at the budget report, for instance, the Lianghui, um, you find that in 2013, which was a year which had extremely uh, serious episodes of air pollution and in which the question of, of, of uh, pollution had moved right up the political agenda. The spending, which but the budgeted spending was already in some in the view of many experts inadequate, they underspent by 10% when every other item on the agenda um, you know, in education or social policy uh, got more spending. So, so you have to question you know, the political will uh, behind that. Um, and the other uh, issue is that um, whilst you uh, can um, formulate policy and make rules and make laws, and China has many of them, as Jonathan suggested, when you look at the enactment of them, um, it's, it's, it's pretty ropey, and it's pretty ropey uh, because, again, you're relying on a top-down authoritarian system where the motivation of the people reporting upwards uh, is basically to please the boss. So you have huge strides in China in terms of uh, real-time reporting of air pollution. And this is just in the last two years. So 170-plus uh, cities are now ostensibly reporting their air pollution figures in real time. This is a big leap forward. However, there is a bit of a gap between what's being reported and the lived experience of the air pollution. So the figures go on getting rather good, um, and the air pollution goes on deteriorating. So some of the more enterprising delegates at Yanghui said, well, why is this? And of course the answer is um, that everybody's gaming the system, because what, what gets you promoted um, is, is meeting targets that have been set um, from above. And, um, and there are many ways to game the system. You can recite the monitors. You can interfere with the data between collection and reporting. Um, and, and there is no effective sanction against uh, that kind of cheating. So that an enterprise which is misreporting its emissions can be fined about $8,000. And at that point, it is an entirely rational judgment to go on polluting rather than cleaning up because it's much cheaper. And again, you know, the, the law uh, is, it, the law needs amending. The government could amend the law and the government could apply the law, but it isn't doing it. 
The ministry that is in charge of, of, of doing that, the Ministry of Environmental Protection, um, has a few hundred employees. I think it's 600. Its equivalent in the United States has 70,000. All the provincial and local uh, environmental protection bureaus are not, don't answer to the central government. They answer to the local government, <coughs> which is, in general terms, complicit in the pollution because local governments are tied in with local enterprise and they protect local enterprise. So that you have a whole set of structures in which vested interests are defeating uh, the stated object of, of, of the government. And I think that until, and, and again, the other instrument which was available elsewhere, where, for instance, in the United States, great use was made of litigation by powerful civil society organizations. Um, the new draft of the environmental protection law, which is still much discussed and not advancing uh, very far, um, laid out uh, a limitation on, on access to justice. Uh, it tried to limit uh, to one organization, a gongo, a government-controlled civil society organization, uh, would, have, would be the only organization that had the right to take environmental cases to court. So all the independent organizations, the private citizens, were to be excluded. And again, you know, this is a preposterous fix, which is really designed to protect vested interests. Now, I go on at length about this, not only because it's what we do, but because it illustrates uh, the difficulty of, of making and enacting policy in, at this point in, in China's transition. It's a very different story from the first 20 to 30 years. And I think that, um, like Jonathan, I think that uh, uh, this, will, this will not be resolved, I think, without quite painful uh, and difficult uh, political transitions, whatever form they take. They will be contested, uh, they will be, and at the moment, I have to say, it's going in the other direction. Um, but I think that the tightening that we've seen on uh, public opinion in the last six months, the, 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 uh, the renewed clampdown on social media, um, is, is a, an expression of short-term anxiety rather than a longer-term and more sustainable, um, more sustainable policy. So I think that's um, essentially... Um, what I would say um, in support of the notion uh, that China has a great deal to sort out domestically before it, it even thinks about dominating the 21st century. Um, and in terms of its uh, international implications, China uh, will be, again, very much in the spotlight in the run-up to the Conference of the Parties in Paris in 2015, when there will be another global attempt to reach a deal on climate. China's been the world's biggest emitter for some years now. And although China has an important uh, domestic policy on climate change, or at least on climate-friendly uh, policies, uh, if the figures can't be believed and if the policy is ineffective for the reasons I described, China will again find itself or risks find itself as the bad boy of those negotiations. Um, so I hope that for China's sake and for all our sakes, uh, uh, that some more effective uh, system emerges. But I think it will be difficult and painful, and I think it will certainly preoccupy uh, the energy of China's political class for some time. Mm.
Thank you very much, Isabel, for focusing on some really important questions with regard to China's future. So, Ambassador Wu, what, what's your view of China's position in the 21st century? Thank you, thank you, Professor Westhart. Before I speak, I, I'm asked to read a line in Chinese for the promotion of LSE ideas. We have finally got a good Chinese name for LSE ideas, and the ambassador was kind enough to go through it in both of its forms. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. To uh, previous panelists, they say no to this question from different perspectives. And Elizabeth mentioned the huge problems facing China. I'm last one to believe that China is problem-free. Tell me in this world, what country is problem-free? I think what matters is to look at this country, whether these problems come from the, the fact the countries move forward or the country stands still or the country moves backward. China is facing daunting challenges, many problems, but China is moving forward. To meet these challenges, we need reform. You look around the world, what countries is engaging, is embarking on the huge reform program. China is doing that, talking about democracy. Democracy is part of the Chinese Communist Party's program. Today, we like to make China a prosperous, democratic, civilized, the harmonious country. Democracy is part of a Chinese goal, China's goal. So having said that, let me get back to the, to the question, will China dominate 21st century? My answer is no, for three reasons. One, world has changed. With the end of the Cold War, with the collapse of Soviet Union in 1991, U.S. remains the only superpower in the world. The past 23 years witnessed a major trend in the world that is power diffusion. diffusion. Apart from U.S., other power centers have been rising. Europe, China, India, South Africa, uh, Mexico, uh, Brazil, etc. The world to, is, is evolving towards multipolarity. In the foreseeable future, I don't see anything which can break this trend. I think in 21st century, no country will be able to dominate the world. That's the first reason. Second reason, domination is not part of the Chinese culture. We have a very old culture. 
Let me just give you one example. The world went through so many changes. About 600 years ago, China, I mean, had the largest fleet in the world. Under leadership of Art Admiral Zheng He, Chinese fleet went abroad for seven times. This fleet was the most powerful, powerful fleet in the world. It was composed of about seventy vessels, with uh, roughly twenty-eight thousand seamen on board. This fleet went to Southeast Asia, to Middle East, to Africa, and China. The Chinese didn't take advantage of her strength to colonize the country they visited. Just compare with the I mean, Western's behavior. Christoph Colomb. Discovered a new continent in 1492, where the Chinese fleet went abroad 1405. So, with the I mean Christoph Columbus, they went to America with three vessels, 87 seamen on board. But after that. The Western and the Chinese, they follow the different courses of action. So, I believe culture determines the state of mind. State of mind determines the course of action. So here, in this regard, culture is the defining factor. The domination. Is not part of Chinese culture. My th- third reason is China's, I mean, foreign international strategy is peaceful rise. You know, since 1978, China adopted a new policy orientation, what we call reform and opening up. Why reform? Because we Chinese, we realize globalization is、uh, irreversible. No matter you like it or not,、uh, China has to embrace globalization. For that purpose, we need to change ourselves. Why opening up? Because we realize today, no country. Can modernize itself in isolation. China lags far behind the industrialized countries. Only way to catch up is to open up China to the outside world. So this is、uh, opened up to the outside world and the reform. Then our international strategy is peaceful rise. Peaceful rise. What does it mean? To my understanding. Peaceful rise means three no's and three yeses. Three no's means first no, no to expansion. China will never follow the footsteps 
of former colonial powers. Second, though, is no hegemony. China will never follow the footsteps of the former Soviet Union in seeking global hegemony. The third no is no alliance. We Chinese, we believe that alliance is something of the past. China will never form any military alliance with anybody. I think this is in the best interest of the world, not only of China. Should China have decided to form alliance with other major powers, believe me, a new Cold War would have started. Everybody would be loser. China will not do that. Three yeses means the first yes, yes to peace. We support peace. In the last 35 years, we achieved a lot thanks to peace. Last 35 years are most peaceful years China ever enjoyed since Opium War, since 1840. So China said yes to peace. Second yes is yes to development. We are facing a lot of problems and challenges. We believe that only, de- only development can provide solution. Third yes, yes to cooperation. Because we understand international cooperation is indispensable for China modernization. To make this international cooperation sustainable, we need to base that cooperation on the mutual benefit, on win-win. Only that, the international cooperation with China will be sustainable. So this is China's international strategy. This strategy worked quite well in the past 35 years. And for China, there's no reason to change it. So for these three reasons, uh, I say no to the question, will China dominate the 21st century? I stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Wu. So we have three no's of here as well, uh, although they are very different no's in many ways to the question of whether China will dominate the 21st century. At least they come from very different perspectives, I think, of what China looks like today. So I'd like to explore that a little bit before turning to the audience. And I want to pick up with what Ambassador Wu said about China's foreign policy. So I want to look at that a little bit more specifically. So, Jonathan and Isabel, would you agree that China's foreign policy is predominantly peaceful and is likely to stay that way, as a, almost as a matter of doctrine for the, for the rest of the 21st century? Isabel, can I, can I start with you? Well, I think that there are perhaps two points in, in Ambassador Wu's remarks which, uh, which would be contested in a number of fora. One is the notion that China 
has never expanded. China's twice the size it was in 1644, um, and, and those territories which are now formally within the People's Republic are troublesome uh, and troubled. Um, so that to the question of whether it is in, China, in Chinese culture to dominate, you would get a very different answer if you asked that question in Kashgar or Lhasa or, or you know, perhaps even in a Mongolia. Hmm. Um, and I think it would, it would be a very different perspective. To the question of, 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 of peaceful, whether China is entirely peaceful, well, I think that it's no secret there's been a lot of nervousness amongst the neighbors um, recently. Um, the Nine Dash Line, the, the... In the South China Sea. Indeed. South China yeah. Sea, mm-hmm. East China Sea, a sense that China was um, perhaps becoming more assertive, if not, uh, if not aggressive. But I think it is absolutely not in China's interest, and I would be astonished if, barring accidents, there was a military clash of any kind. It would be crazy for China to do that. Um, mm. It doesn't mean that accidents can't happen, but I think I absolutely agree with the ambassador that this is not in the blueprint. Um, but I do sense um, a sort of muscular assertiveness that, that is a change in tone mm. in the last few years. Mm. So not peaceful by nature, but peaceful to some extent at least by, by design in terms of where China's interest is at the moment. Yes, I mean certainly peaceful. It's in its interest to maintain mm. as much peace as possible, mm. for sure. John, you agree? No, I would agree with that, and I, I think you know, yes, the yeses and the noes are all in China's interest. Uh, so whether this is these are policies which uh, are dictated by that, or whether they represent something more fundamental, mm. what one could question. I mean, it obviously Deng Xiaoping, you know, hide your brilliance, uh, bide your time. Uh, approach uh, and uh, get on with the foreigners don't appear in any way threatening uh, because, as the ambassador said, globalization uh, has been essential for the modernization of China. China is probably the power which has made most out of, uh, of globalization, both in terms of its exports and its imports uh, and the, the modernization of industry and society. So China has a very direct interest, uh, I think, in peace uh, and, and in a peaceful rise. But you know, as Isabel um, suggested, perhaps, the question is now becoming that I think China wants, it wants two things. It wants more respect from the United States. That's what we were told at the time of the Xi Jinping-Obama summit in California last June. Um, and secondly, it wants regionally uh, not necessarily to dominate absolutely, but certainly uh, to to be the the main power in, in the East Asia region. And really, the question I think there is with Japan taking a stronger line under Prime Minister Abe. Uh, you know, in, in the past, Japan would very much say uh, would would. would um, work its way out of any dispute with minimum fuss. I remember in, when was it, in the autumn of 2010 when uh, there was an incident uh, involving a Chinese trawler uh, ship and a Japanese Coast Guard ship, and the Japanese very quickly apologized for that. Mm. It, was, it was all their fault. Uh, that is less so, obviously, now mm. with the dispute uh, over the island. So this, you know, the, 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 there is the question, I think, of, a, of, of at least a potential uh, com- um, 
conflict, their tension between China's interests in peace, mainly for economic reasons, I'd say, and the increasingly assertive position in the region by many of the powers involved, I mean, including the Philippines now, who you wouldn't have expected uh, to have taken that view. So these are coming under some kind of tension, I think. Sure. Ambassador Wu, could I turn back to you before uh, turning to the audience just on that regional dimension? Of course, it's something I think there's a great deal of interest in here at the school and, and elsewhere as well. Um, you know, some people would be saying that with regard to its relationship to Southeast Asia, the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea, its relationship with Japan overall, its problems in terms of relations with South Korea over the Chinese sponsorship, at least in economic terms, of North Korea, that there are some difficulties now within the region that seem to come to the fore in a way they didn't say 10 years ago or, or, or earlier. Would you, would you agree with that, or, or, or do you think this is a part of a logical development of China's foreign policy? So I, I really disagree. Let me uh, make a few points. You know, China holds on to the peace because we need it, because we believe that the world has changed. Looking at uh, when the world moved into the 21st century, mm. in the international relations, something new emerged. What? The war used to be very powerful in the international relations. If country couldn't agree to resolve their differences through peaceful means, they went to the war. The war settled everything. But today, look at Afghanistan, look at Iraq. Tell me what kind of problem have been resolved by these two wars. I see none. I think um, our American friends will spend a lot of energy in coming years, in coming decades, to face up the consequences which derived from these two wars. The war is no longer omnipotent. I think this is a huge progress of the human civilization. Means what? The jungle law, power politics will not prevail. This is, I think, China understand that. Mm. How you explain China's behavior with regard to the territorial <coughs> disputes? I think people here, you've got to understand that the Chinese are very sensitive about the sovereignty and the integrity, you know, territorial integrity because of the history. Since the uh, Opium War, China was uh, humiliated over a century. China was divided into spheres of influence by the major powers. So the memory is still fresh. When it touched upon the territorial integrity and the sovereignty, Chinese are very, I mean, sensitive. However, look at uh, the dispute, territorial dispute between China and uh, uh, her neighbors, China always advocates peaceful solution. My last point is about Japan. You know, 
if you look at, I mean, China-Japanese uh, Japan relations since uh, 72, the tremendous growth uh, was uh, there in terms of China-Japan cooperation. Mm. Last year, the trade volume between China and Japan amounted to more than 300 billion US dollars. This is the actual interdependence mm. between China and Japan, economically speaking. I don't know whether you remember that. December 20th, 2013, my ambassador paid a visit to Japanese foreign minister. The conversation went quite well. Both sides, very good conversation. Mm. On the Chinese side, we prepared a series of measures to improve China-Japan relations. The Japanese Prime Minister Abe, he was aware of that. However, six days later, he chose to pay a visit to Yasukuni Shrine, 14 Class A war criminal are there. Just imagine, we have a German friend here. If a German chancellor <coughs> will go somewhere to honor, to honor the memory of Adolf Hitler, I think next day he or she will step will be forced to step down. When people talk about Hitler, people think of the Holocaust. Six, six million Jews died from the Holocaust. But in, in the case of the China-Japan war, 30 million people died from it. Five times Holocaust. But still, Prime Minister Abe chose to to go there. You know, 2006, then Prime Minister Abe made an ice-breaking visit to China. And understanding that, because before that, Prime Minister Abe reached a sort of a gentleman's agreement with China. He said, promised not to pay visit to Yasukuni Shrine as Prime Minister, we had we reached that kind of understanding. Mm. Then Abe went to China because uh, you know former Japanese uh, Prime Minister Koizumi uh, paid five or six visits to Yasukuni Shrine. Mm. So we Chinese we don't understand why Abe uh, chose to pay a visit to Yasukuni Shrine six days after that conversation. So we, my explanation is Prime Minister Abe needs tension in China-Japan relationship to achieve his political goal, which is to amend the Japanese constitution. And for that purpose, it's not easy. For that purpose, he needs some tension between China and Japan to, I mean, to fire up sort of nationalism in China, in Japan, and to achieve his political goal. It's very, mm. very much unfortunate. Mm.
It's interesting, only a couple of days ago I heard exactly the same explanation given for Chinese motives by a Japanese I was dealing with. So I'm sure there are people here in the audience who will have questions on that and other matters. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take several questions because I'm really interested in getting the audience engaged in this discussion. And then I will turn back to the panel for very brief responses to these. So I'm going to take several let me start at the back here with Professor Busan over there. I will go upstairs again. Do we have a microphone upstairs? Okay, could you go up with the microphone? Barry. Um, I'd like to push the panel a bit further on this question of the region because I noticed... Barry, can you speak up a bit? The set question is, will China dominate the 21st century? Everybody answered a clear no, as if that question was, will China dominate the world in the 21st century? I'm detecting a split if we rephrase the question to say, will China dominate East Asia in the 21st century? We've got one clear no, one probable yes, and I'm not quite sure where Isabel stands on this, but I'd like to tease that out a bit more. <laughs> Very good. Someone else in the same neighborhood down there. Yes, sir. Please be brief when you ask your questions, because I want to get as many in as possible. I am brief. I'm become, I become obscure, but nevertheless. Um, What kind of China we would have that's important? I mean, China is, one in, one in four of humanity is Chinese. So China is bound to have influence in the world. Now, question is, what kind of China, what kind of uh, China we would, we would have in the future? I mean, that, on that will depend uh, how, I mean, yes, how, how will it react to, how will it behave in the, in the world stage? Now, Ambassador pointed out that it is, in, it is not in the culture of China to dominate. Uh, could I ask you, is it in the culture of Chinese to live with an autocratic rule? And if it is not, if it is not, then could you, say, could you uh, tell us when China might secure democracy, um, universal franchise? I ask you this question not because, of, because I... I I'm, uh, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm embarrass you. I'm asking this question. On this, the answer of this question, on this answer, answer of this question, will depend what kind of China we will have in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go upstairs. Yes, the lady at the back over there. Can we get the microphone? Thank you. Hi, I have a question that uh, some scholars say that China's uh, become more assertive after 2008. So my question is, uh, some scholars will say this is because of China's increasing nationalism among the public opinion. So do you think to what extent this kind of nationalism will affect Chinese official policy making? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else up there? Balcony is far too often ignored. There's one gentleman over there. Please. Thank you for the panel, very interesting. Uh, my name is Matteo Bernelli, I'm an LSE student in IR. Um, I just had a quick question on, on the current Ukraine crisis and the position of China in it. I mean, as China seeks to become a, kind of a great power and, and seek a, a type of respect in the global stage that it, that it kind of wants, um, will it need to change its policy of, you know, of, of simply saying we need peace, we need peaceful solution, but when the, when the going gets tough, um, will it also try to seek the rest of the, can join the rest of the global community in, um, in actually showing that it has the, the, the resolve as the second biggest economy in the world to actually play you know, a larger role in, in the question, specifically now in a case of quite clear Russian aggression, um, and also because Russia has kind of influence in the East 
Asia region and has some direct implications for China as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good question. So, with great power comes great responsibility, and will China actually live up to that? Uh, Ukraine is, a, is of course, on, on many people's mind here now. Going to take a couple of more questions and then turn to the turn to the panel. Munir, just up front here. Thank you, Ali. I mean, all sorts of reasons have been deduced why China can't, uh, is not interested in, and therefore won't, you know, dominate the world in the 21st century. Right? Uh, truculent but not imperial Japan, you know, a new description of China and so on. Now, are we not in danger here by, you know, adducing all these reasons of, of, of giving China too much of a benefit of the doubt, you know? Uh, not quite a blank check, but if you look at China's near abroad, I mean, this is a term very much in fashion these days, of Crimea and so on, the Chinese attitudes and actions uh, have not been flawless in support of peaceful rights, I mean, especially in the South China Sea. Arnie, you mentioned this, respect to the nine-dashed line, and actions against the Philippines, Sovereignty is so important to China, so it is important to other countries equally. Mm. And how China deals with smaller countries in the exercise of its sovereignty reflects on whether it is, its words about sovereignty and mutual respect are regarded well in action and attitudes. So there, is, there are incidents, instances, particularly in the last five years or more or so, where China seems to be getting out of this uh, straitjacket of peaceful rights and asserting its, 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 its interests in fashions that presage, if not a domination, a certain different approach in relationships, which may not always be benign. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. That's a very good question. Sovereignty cuts both ways. Nationalism yeah. seems to be on the rise in a number of countries. Um, could we take one more, one more question? Yes, gentlemen in the front row. We will do another round of questions, so we'll get back to you. Please. Thank you. Um, Isabel referred to uh, a very key issue for foreign investors in China, which is trends in regulation and the law. Now, of course, we all recognize that China, like everywhere, needs, needs law in every, in every sector. There is a great danger of China making the same mistake of the European Union of overcomplicating the process, and we end up with what I call thicker manuals, increase risk, not reduce it. So how do we ensure that regulation going forward is kept short and simple? Yes, clear. Yes, tough. But it's got to be short and simple. Um, and, and there's increasing concern, it's in, been in the media a lot in the last uh, week or two on this particular mm. subject of excessive regulation. Thank mm. you. Thank you very much. Let's try to handle those. Ambassador Book, could I turn to you first this time yes. uh, on some of these questions? And I'll, I'll get to the others on the panel as well. Mm. Ambassador. Mm. Uh, you know, since uh, 2008, since the financial crisis, I'm seeing a global phenomenon, which is the rising nationalism and populism. It's not only in Asia, everywhere. When country is on the rise, nationalism too is on the rise. 
When country is in the difficulty, nationalism is also on the rise. I believe the combination of nationalism and populism is very dangerous because the combination of these two isms will lead politicians to be hijacked by nationalism. I met the former Vice President Albo in Paris, uh, two years ago in Paris. At the conference, he said that what put an end to the Great Depression, it was not FDR's New Deal, it was the war. At that time, the combination of nationalism and populism led the world to the war. So I believe from a global perspective, we have to be very vigilant with regard to nationalism and populism. I'm saying that in China too, because uh, nationalism sometimes make people uh, don't see the major interests of China. This is the problem facing, facing China too. Then about Ukraine, what's the position of China? I think the spokesman of the foreign ministry has stated out the China's position. My prime minister, also my president, said China's position. Let me give you my explanation. Both Russia and Ukraine, they have diplomatic relations with China. Today we see the big dispute between European Union, America on one side, uh, Russia on the other side. We have good relations with everybody. Very sharp dispute. What China can do? We have our I mean, long-standing principles about sovereignty, about non-interference. Certainly China will not give up these principles. So all we can do, we urge I mean, parties concerned to resolve these differences, this dispute, through diplomatic means. Yeah, this is uh, what China stands for. I stop there, maybe. Could I follow up before turning to the others on the Ukraine? Yeah, because I think there will be a lot of interest in that question. And yours was one of the most succinct and therefore most interesting explanations that I've heard, echoing quite correctly, as you said, what has been said um, by the Chinese foreign minister, I think, most, most clearly. So from that, we will take that China can under no circumstance accept the Russian occupation of the Crimea. I mean, that this has to be negotiated freely on the basis of the relationship between the two states. So I, I, as I stated earlier, we hope the parties concerned, the countries concerned, will resolve their differences through the diplomatic means. That will be good in the interest of everybody. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, John? No, I mean, certainly, but, but I do think still, you know, China is caught here in a difficult position. I mean, if you, of course, deny that Russia has intervened in the internal affairs of a sovereign state and this was all uh, 
the, the reaction by the Russian-speaking people in the Crimea against a fascist hooligan government uh, in Kiev, then obviously uh, there is no problem. But I don't think many people will take that point of view. So there really is a problem for, for China here. Uh, not necessarily they would intervene in Ukraine, although I believe Xi Jinping did at one point offer to extend China's nuclear weapons to protect the previous Ukraine regime if it was invaded at any point. Uh, we'll see what becomes of that. And obviously China has big uh, investments in agricultural land and food in Ukraine which have gone rather horribly wrong uh, it must be said uh, with a lot of money, Chinese money flowing in and very little food flowing out. Um, but China is basically you know, between a rock and a hard place in this over this whole question of respect uh, of sovereign uh, countries and uh, no, no intervention there, I think. Um, on some of the other issues, I think we've talked about East Asia, and I take absolutely your point. I mean, I'd say that the effect of China's pushing out of the nine-dash line and everything like that, uh, and indeed over the islands, has been to push a lot of powers closer to the United States. Uh, this It hasn't exactly been a policy that has won uh, friends in the region, although there's been a lot of checkbook uh, diplomacy on both the Chinese and Japanese side in Southeast Asia recently. But I think the bottom line there probably is the U.S. presence, and that is what makes East Asia uh, particularly sensitive for the Chinese, but also limits uh, the extent uh, of, of power projection uh, there. Uh, on nationalism, which we talked about, uh, it, it's a difficult word because we tend to, it tends to be used rather pejoratively, nationalism. If you say patriotism, on the other hand, that is seen as a more positive thing. And you could say that somewhere between nationalist patriotism or patriotic nationalism uh, is inherent in Xi Jinping's China dream. Uh, and with that comes obviously the rejuvenation of the military and all these other elements and then you've got the whole social media uh, phenomenon which we've touched on at various points here which of course brings some very bellicose popular reactions particularly vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Japan um, and uh, Martin finally I think to, to reduce regulation the first thing you've got to have is an independent rule of law and accountability and in a country where all judges swear an oath of loyalty to the Communist Party as a way to go. Isabel. Um, just on that last point, yeah, I, I agree. But I think that, that the other big problem with Chinese law as it stands is that it tends to be vague, and, and in some cases deliberately so, because it's, it's about negotiated authoritarianism. The, 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 the process of formation of law in China is... A, you know, it is the sausage machine. You know, you are you are negotiating all kinds of interests, and the result is often extraordinarily unclear. Um, and the other question is, you know, who, for on whose behalf is the law exercised? You know, if it is uh, if it is impartial and and everyone has access to it, it's one story. But that's not really the case in China. So I think that there are um, quite fundamental uh, issues to address there. On the question of whether China will dominate the region, well, I, that may be, you know, uh, that may be an ambition. Um, it hasn't done terribly well 
lately, because China's increased assertiveness in its near abroad, at least in terms of the maritime disputes, have mm. had the effect of, of binding its uh, smaller neighbours together and to the United States rather than, um, you know, it's produced an, an opposite reaction. But I think that there's another bit of China's near abroad, which is going to be a much bigger test, and, and it'll be very, very interesting to see whether China finally does... Um, begin to assert the kind of, uh, of political leadership, if you like, that it is generally assumed to be commensurate with um, a big power. And that's Afghanistan. With the, with, you know, when, they, when the troops, when NATO and, and US troops um, do leave Afghanistan, there is going to be a very, very big security vacuum, which directly affects China in a number of ways. It's a very small border. Yeah. But China has enormous investments in Afghanistan. It has the world's second largest copper concession in Aina, uh, the, biggest in, the biggest investment that was, that was ever made in Afghanistan, not yet uh, exploited. Um, it, has, uh, it has an oil uh, uh, enterprise in the north, which is sort of functioning. Um, but also it has, um, it has the running problem of Xinjiang, and that is related to the questions of um, security, which its relationship with Pakistan has, to some extent, protected it, but that is breaking down. Um, it, at the same time, economically and strategically, it, it wishes to open up Xinjiang to Central Asia. Uh, that, is a, that is a two-edged proposition, because you know, when that border... As that border is open, uh, all kinds of things can cross it. Um, and it remains to be seen whether the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization will be robust enough to maintain that kind of security. Um, but who will fill that, that role of regional leadership when Afghanistan again risks becoming unstable will be quite a central question, I think, for China and a test of its, um, of, of its leadership. On nationalism, I, wouldn't, I would go back further than 2008, quite honestly. I would go back to 1989, um, when the state project of... of what, what, you know, countries, nations tell, tell their stories differently at different points in their history. Um, and in the Maoist era, era it was the promise of, of, of socialist utopia that was the legitimating narrative uh, for, for, for the party and the government. Um, and that really broke down in 1989, definitively. And the narrative then became, as an explicit state project, uh, a nationalist narrative. It became one of historic grievance of, of, of the injured party. It became the promise that the, party, the party's role was to restore China to its place in the world. And this was accompanied by an education program, a history program, and a, a state-sponsored memorialization project, which involved the building of, of many, many uh, uh, museums to Japanese atrocities and the restoration of the old summer palace and so on. And all of that is a state story. It's a state-directed narrative. And that is what Chinese nationalism today you know, is, is composed of. And, and yes, it has its perils. It means that, you know, public opinion is extremely sensitive to Japan. Um, I, I'm not saying that the millions of dead should not be memorialized, but there are millions of dead in China's recent history who are not memorialized at all. The dead in the Great Leap Forward are not memorialized. In fact, not 
acknowledged largely, the dead of the Cultural Revolution or of land reform or any of that, that first three decades of communist rule. You know, the numbers do stack up. So, so history is dangerous territory. Um, and and uh, I think it is quite difficult to build a national story on, on uh, one view of history. Um, and it does trap. It, I think it, it is a political trap. Did I answer everything? You've talked about Ukraine. We can get back to you in, in a yeah. second. Could we hold it a little bit? I want to go another round with the audience, but then you would have to promise me that you're very brief. I've been very unfair to my friend sitting on the side here, in part because I can't see you. But I can now. Yes, please. Yes. Hello. The ambassador's third yes was cooperation. And I guess a rather simple question, and perhaps a little selfish in some ways, but the resounding answer to your question was no, that China won't dominate. But what does that mean for us sitting in Europe? Should we reevaluate our relationship with China? Does that change the way we should engage with it, or what does that mean, that answer? Thank you. And there's another one right at the end over there. Uh, by, the, by the wall, yeah. Please. I'll try and be brief. Uh, the panel talked a lot about domestic problems that the Communist Party faces, uh, and yet Jonathan Fenby said that there's no alternative to the Communist Party rule. So, in terms of foreign policy, what does the panel does the panel think that the rule of the Communist Party is holding back China? Thank you. And then, sorry for that, the microphone over on this side. No, there is a microphone over there as well. Please, so at the end, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, to what extent will China influence the global financial system? either increasingly, decreasingly, or no extent in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. No. Oh, could you repeat the question? Because there was a... Uh, to what extent will China influence the global financial system in the 21st century? Will it be increasingly, decreasingly, or no change? That's a very concrete, good question. Someone else over here? Uh, no? Johnson? No, not, not Johnson. Guy, sorry. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, and congratulations to all the speakers. Listening to the discussion, I, I wonder whether actually the um, theme, the title shouldn't be the other way around, whether a hesitant, reluctant, and uncertain China can avoid having to be far more engaged in the world's problems than it would probably like. I mean, let's face it, China's had an extremely easy ride. You've been able to just leave it to the Americans to sort out all the problems. That's why you've been able to conduct a non-intervention policy. Um, but two things have changed. America is far less able to play that role, both for its political reasons and also for reasons in the countries concerned. Mm. And secondly, you now rely massively, and ultimately the political authority of the party relies massively on hugely extended supply lines carrying vital raw materials from extremely unstable countries. You saw what happened in Libya, where China really didn't know what to do. Syria is still, although not a big resource producer, is, is, is still a, um, a major source of problems. You've got Ukraine. You put big bucks on grain in Ukraine. You're not getting any, and you may not get any. I'd like to ask the panel could they, what they think about that and, and how they think China, how well equipped China, they think China is to deal with those kinds of problems which are likely to become far more common and frequent in the future. Thanks, Kat. Could you pass the mic to the lady behind you? Please. Yes. I wanted to ask, please, how does the 
Chinese government and the Chinese public define democracy. And when the reforms hopefully are successful, how would this democracy be similar or different from Western democracy? Thank you very much. Isabel, could I start with you this, this time around, <laughs> if you wanted to? I'm just a Chinese public-defined democracy. It's a pretty unanswerable question, really. Um, I, I don't know how people would define democracy. How would you define democracy in China? I mean, that's a, well, that's, a twist. I, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a tricky one. I mean, I, it, to me, the things that matter, um, I, I think... I mean, obviously, it matters that you can throw out a government you don't like at the next election. I think we're quite a long way off that. I, I would consider it progress if the elements that, that made democracy work, which are the ones we've been talking about, rule of law, uh, freedom of association, the kind of civic rights that, that accrue if a citizen is regarded as master of the state, that if those were more uh, uh, generously applied in China, I think we would have made progress. Because I think that China hasn't answered, for 100 years, has not answered the question, who does the state belong to? You know, does it belong to the people? Or does it belong, as it were, to the emperor or his, his you know, new incarnation? Um, and it, it, clearly, it seems to belong to the party. Now, is that a recipe for the 21st century? No, I don't think so. And, and I elaborated in my, in my opening remarks on, on the problems that that creates. So I would, as I say, consider it progress, uh, whether, we got to, um, whether we got to the point of elections or not. I would certainly consider it progress if the underpinnings uh, were more robustly um, applied. One of the most interesting people I ever met in China, actually, was, was, was in that, you know, the translation bureau, that... that that entity that, um, that produces documents for the Central Committee. And this was a man who had spent three years in Hungary at, at George Soros's university um, studying the Hungarian transition. And that was a very interesting transition. If you're worried about how you make transitions, it's an interesting one to, to study because that wasn't a 1989 transition. It happened much earlier when the party basically said, this isn't working anymore, and, and split into a number of constituent elements and... and, and competed for power with a few newcomers. Now, th that was floated as a proposition in China by uh, an academic about four years ago. There's a perfectly rational way to make a transition to democracy, which doesn't involve chaos, collapse, and civil war, which is that the party recognized that it has different tendencies and different, um, and different uh, uh, preferences, and that it uh, reform itself as a number of competing groups with an agreement that if you lose the election, you don't go to jail, and if you win, you know, you, you respect the, the next election. Uh, it, it, is, it, was, it was an interesting discussion while it lasted, so I, I throw that in for future reference. Um, I think, oh, on extended supply lines and the need for leadership, well, I absolutely agree. China is going to have to um, raise its game, and, and Afghanistan is one is one case of that, you know, where you have big investments, you have a security problem which is entirely ridden on the back of the US and NATO. And I think it remains slightly to be seen how much China is prepared um, to, uh, to leave the United States as a big power in the Pacific. I mean, China's, China's strategic 
tenancy at the moment um, is partly to build a navy for those supply lines, but also in terms of defence. It's about denial. It's about theatre denial. It's about cyber and, and, and submarine warfare, largely. And that's about denying... It's not about engaging in war, but it's, it's about complicating the United States' ability to operate militarily in the Pacific. Mm. Um, and that's okay, but at some point, China is going to have to face up to the question of whether it really wants the United States as a power mm. in the Pacific, with all the advantages that that um, has, uh, but with all the kind of political difficulties mm. that that creates for the, for the national story. And I, I'll mm. be interested to see how that pans out. Mm. Ambassador. Yes. Uh, I'd like to inject a few thoughts about uh, first uh, democracy. I think democracy is a universal aspiration. Uh, democracy has to be implemented in the different countries. Uh, I mean, in accordance with the conditions of this or that country. I was, uh, when I see here, when you talk about democracy, Western people believe that their form of democracy is the only form, only right form to implement democracy. I disagree. Even in the Western world, so there are different forms of democracy. I think to implement a democracy, it's, it's a multi-form of democracy. I was a Chinese ambassador to France. Sometime I had an argument with the French people. I said, you made a revolution in 1789. Uh, your, your slogan, liberté, égalité, fraternité. That's wonderful. Please tell me, when did you give the right to vote to the women, French women? It's very late, 1945 only. It's America, they say also the, I mean, uh, the, the fatherland of the human rights. But when the, I mean, black people in the U.S. enjoy civil rights, not since 1776, not since... 1787, 17, I mean, the first uh, constitution was uh, adopted. So I'm saying that not to embarrass, not to embarrass French or American. Mm. I say in every country, democracy has to be implemented in a way which adapts to the condition of this or that country. China experienced the longest feudal regime, more than 2,000 years of feudal regime. And the feudal regime means absence of democracy. So we, we start from there. In China, this election is, is sort of, I mean, form of democracy. Consultation, another form of democracy. In China's decision-making process, is consensus building process. A lot of consultations has been carried on before I mean, a major decision has been made. This is another kind of form of democracy. I think on that issue, we should be more open-minded, not to, I mean, look 
My form of democracy is the best one. Today, you go to Washington D.C., people will tell you they are experiencing political gridlock. I mean,、mm. interest of the certain parties is everything.、Mm. Who cares about the general interests?、Mm. This is a problem. The, in Europe,、mm. also you have some problems. So I think the democracy is not panacea. Every country has to look for the way to implement the the democracy in their in their、uh, in their country. I think on that issue, I mean. More open-mindedness would be desirable. I must on that. Could I ask you a question before turning to Jonathan? Do you regard China as a democracy today? I think I say China. The democracy was the goal of the Chinese Communist Party. Today, democracy is also goals of the modern China. We like to make China a country prosperous, democratic, civilized, and harmonious. It's our goal. I think people look for democracy. This never-ending process. This is people keep moving towards the democracy. As to what kind of form of democracy will the best for this or that country, it's up to the people of, the, of this country to、uh, to decide. Uh, well, very briefly, <coughs> just to go through、um, some things, will、uh, China's influence on the global financial system will grow? But I think we're going to have to wait a long time for the opening of the capital account and the freedom liberalisation of the currency, which are an essential part of that. The renminbi will be used more and more for trade, but that's rather different from it moving eventually to be. A reserve currency, which people talk about. I think the RMB story is considerably overdone,、uh, in fact. And what's been striking is that while China says, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, everything else, all these institutions were set up before we came on the scene, China, as I said earlier, has not put forward any serious proposals for reform. There was the Governor Zhu with the SDR thing, but he was immediately shot down. Uh, by the prime minister, because he hasn't consulted him before. So I think yes, there'll be more influence in kind of trade terms, day-to-day terms, but not on, on the system、uh, as a whole.、Uh, the European relationship with the PRC, well, it would be good to look beyond immediate national、uh, economic advantage. I mean, China has played the EU very well indeed by cherry-picking. Uh, the uh, powers that it、uh, wants to work with, using, for instance, when it wanted to overturn the uh, solar panel uh, uh, duties and levies,、uh, picked up the telephone to Angela Merkel, and the, jo- the job was done.、Uh, and you can see it playing off、uh, one European country against the others, and the Europeans have been very happy to do that because they hope to get export orders from China. So it's a pretty basic、uh, relationship, I think, for, for, from the EU point of view. Um, Guy, it won't surprise you that I agree with you, since actually I quote you rather to say that in the book from a, a paper you did from the from the LSE.、Uh, yes, it is the wrong way round. You can say, in a way, China is influencing the world, as sorry, the world is influencing China, as much as the other way round. The problem is now that I think that is becoming、uh, a more acute problem. Uh, internally for China, and this goes to the question which somebody else raised: of is the Communist Party holding back China? And my answer to that is yes. That in the end, for me, the fundamental reason 
why uh, China won't dominate the century is that the political system actually acts as a straitjacket to the kind of changes, reforms and evolution which China would need to play a much bigger role and the maintenance of political power is the bottom line. So on democracy, democracy is defined uh, I think by the, the, the party and the government as being democracy within the Communist Party system and for me perhaps it's a very primitive view but democracy means that the, demo, the people can actually get rid of the government which I don't think the Communist Party would wish to go along with at all and also that you allow dissenting voices uh, to put their points of view uh, to evolve uh, the discussion quite freely and in China we see that anybody dissenter who is seen as uh, in, in any way threatening the system is regarded, as was the case under the, in the imperial centuries, uh, as a subversive uh, element who should be uh, locked up or uh, at least uh, kept quiet. So I think the, the democratic process, which would be good in China if you could have it, is at odds with the, the desire for control of the system which emanates from the Politburo of the Communist Party, and which Xi Jinping has actually strengthened over the last year. And finally, on the question of elections, the rule of law, all the other underpinnings are important. Also, democracy takes, as the ambassador said, a long time to evolve. In this country, the establishment was brilliant at giving a little away, but maintaining its power, but becoming a little more democratic. In China, historically, you've only had one a quasi-free national election in 1912-13 to 13, and the leader of the winning party was assassinated the next day by the military strongman. Of course things can change but it's a very long-term process and I don't see much sign of it happening. Which is an interesting suggestion in terms of what you were saying, Jonathan, that maybe what is holding China back in terms of its position in the 21st century, it's not its international affairs, it is the way it's governed and it's what's happening within China itself. Now, Jonathan will be signing his book uh, after this event is over. It's for sale out there in the lobby, and I think the signing will take place in here. Um, I want to thank the panel. Uh, this has been, I think, an extremely enlightening discussion. So my great thanks on behalf of LSE to Ambassador Wu Jianmin, Isabel Hinton, and Jonathan Tenby. We will have you back soon to continue the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you.